we can prioritize relationship over convenience. Convenience is about what's good for me, what's good for me now in this moment. But if we pause and ask about what's good for our relationships, we can come up with some really creative solutions. If we can make it less about ourselves and less about the immediacy of our choices and more about our relationships, our community, and that sacred pause of I don't need it now, I can wait, we may make different choices. Welcome to the newest episode of the In All Things podcast, where we host conversations of diverse voices about living creatively in God's created world. My name is Justin Ariel Bailey, and I teach at Dort University, which is home to the Andreas Center, the sponsor of this podcast. On this episode of the podcast, we are talking with April Fiat about her new book, Sacred Pulse, Holy Rhythms for Overwhelmed Souls. We hope this episode will offer a chance for you to breathe easier and to consider new life-giving practices rather than just more things for your to-do list. And as always, if you find our content helpful, please share the episode or leave us a review. Thanks again for tuning in. I don't know about you, but I am starting this new year feeling maybe as tired as I have ever been. I'm sure that a large part of this has to do with the exceptional circumstances caused by the almost two years of the COVID-19 pandemic. What do we do with our weariness? But I also ask this as a person who tends to burn the candle at both ends, who overcommits, who tries to do too many things and to impress too many people. I used to think of my busyness as a sign of godliness, But as I've gotten older, I've begun to see my busyness as part of a struggle with the deadly sin of sloth. Let me explain. The deadly sin of sloth is fundamentally a lack of care. If unrighteous anger means caring too much about the wrong things, sloth means not caring about the right things. It is not fundamentally about being lazy with our work, but about being lazy with our love. I want to be careful, of course, because sometimes, most times perhaps, work is a chief way that we show faithful love. But work can also be one of the chief ways that we avoid the demands of love. Which means that busyness can be just as certainly a sign of sloth as laziness. As I've realized this about myself, I've tried to unbusy my life. I don't want my students, my friends, my family to know me as a busy person. I've tried to find better rhythms for work and family, tried to get more sleep, tried to resist the malforming effects of social media and smartphone addiction. But when you remove things from your life, if you fail to develop new life-giving practices, other things will try to fill the vacuum, and the weariness is never far away. Is there a better way to deal with our weariness than laziness or busyness? For this reason, I was intrigued by a new book by April Fiat, The Sacred Pulse, Holy Rhythms for Overwhelmed Souls. Early in the book, Fiat suggests that many of those of us who seem to be adept at managing our time are often just better at hiding our weariness. But maybe we don't need to hide our weariness. And maybe there are some better things to do with it, ways of offering it to the Lord as we lean into more life-giving rhythms. 
In her book, Fiat lays out 12 practices that are both sustainable and sustaining so that we can tap into the joyful, holy rhythms of life. If you, like me, find yourself overwhelmed, tired, and in need of some fresh perspective, then I hope you will enjoy this conversation with April Fiat. I'm joined now by two guests. The first is my guest co-host, Dr. Aaron Olson. Aaron is professor of social work here at Dort University. Aaron, thanks for hosting with me. Yeah, thanks for having me. And our feature guest is Reverend April Fiat, pastor and writer and member of our editorial board here at In All Things. April is the author of a new book, The Sacred Pulse, Holy Rhythms for Overwhelmed Souls, and it's the theme of our podcast conversation today. April, thanks so much for joining us on the In All Things podcast. Thank you for having me. So as the subtitle of your book says, this is a book for people who are overwhelmed, overwhelmed souls, people who are weary, and you include yourself in that group. You write, I felt exhausted despite getting more than enough sleep every night, not physically tired, but weary inside. I imagine that some people were just better able to work long days, get little sleep, eat junk food all day long with little in the way of consequences. I've begun to realize that this isn't true. Some of us are better at hiding our weariness than others, but all of us thrive when we step away from the rhythm of expectations and tasks and toward the rhythm that gives us life. So I highlighted that passage uh, because I certainly feel the weariness. I think I'm part of this group of overwhelmed souls that you're writing for, but it also shifts the conversation. Um, in a really important way, if what we are better at is not necessarily managing our time, but hiding our weariness. Can you say more about that? Yeah, I would love to speak to that. For anyone who has recently seen the movie Encanto, I think that they may relate to the character of Luiza a little bit, who felt she needed to be strong and have it together and hold all of those things on her shoulders. And some of us from very young ages, maybe were schooled in that, the need to appear that you have it all together on the outside while you're falling apart on the inside. And I know for myself, I would definitely put myself in that category. And in fact, I was reading through my book with a group that I teach on Thursday mornings. And one of the women, even though I've been leading this class for six years, and I feel I've been very transparent with the people in this group, she said, April, I read this book and I never knew you felt that way. I never knew you felt overwhelmed or stretched or weary. And she said, you always seem so calm, like you have it together. And I thought, oh boy, if only she knew what was going on in the inside. And I'm not sure where, where, that, where that impulse comes from to put on a strong face, to put on that calm, collected front. I'm not sure if it's a product of our upbringing, if it's cultural. I don't know if it's um, in the church. I know a lot of times we want people to think that we are well on our way to being sanctified, made holy through the Spirit. And we don't want to let any of those cracks or those weaknesses show. So I'm not sure really what the cause of that is, but I think so many of us can relate to that, that fear of letting other people see the struggle. Yeah, I saw this meme the other day that was said something like, so adulthood is basically saying things are busy right now, but they're about to get better until you die. Um, and it sort of made me think of that, you know, that... Um, 
we have this sort of we are always deferring where i'm i'm weary right now but i'm going to get to this place that i'm not going to be weary and and is weariness just a part of being human in some sense and if it is what do we do with it what what do we do with this sense of weariness that we feel can we cure ourselves of it or is this sort of this intractable kink of the human condition that we're going to be weary and we need to figure out how to live with the weariness in some sense yeah that's a great question i think that it's a little bit of both i think that because we are human god knew we would be weary and i think that's why sabbath is a commandment because we need that we need that opportunity to have a separation between our waking life and our resting life but i also think that we as americans glorify workaholism and constant availability, I think there's there's almost a martyrdom of being able to say, I'm so tired, but I did it anyway. And I think we have to reckon with that. I think that's the part we can work on, where we can say, God doesn't command that of me. God doesn't command me to exhaust my resources. And that's where we can begin to work on it. I don't know that there's a cure. Um, we, we get weary. Sometimes our weeks pile up and there's not anything we can do about it. Sometimes it's like an avalanche that just comes crashing down and you just have to get through. But a lot of times we we struggle to say no because we don't want to let someone down. Or we our eyes are bigger than our stomachs, so to speak. And we think, oh, I can handle all of that. And as soon as they, as we say yes, we think, oh no, what have I done? And those are opportunities where we can we can learn. Um, learn how to set better boundaries in the future, um, acknowledge our limitations. Sometimes we need to be honest with each other and say, you know, I said yes to this and now I don't know how I'm going to do it. And that's okay. And maybe if we find the courage to do that, other people will then find the courage to do that as well. Yeah. You talked about just a minute ago about always being available and saying yes. And I think that that has been just exacerbated as mm-hmm. we've gone through the you know, and are currently in the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, I remember, you know, sitting on the couch with my husband and my children, um, getting the announcement that school was going to be closed. And and they were excited. I was a little bit excited, felt a little bit like a never ending snow day. And you talk yeah. about the, the, the beauty of snow days uh, in your book. But for me, it seems now thinking back on how things have changed, it feels like it's changed work forever for me. Mm-hmm. The fun has worn off. Obviously, my kids have gone back to school. Um, I'm back in the office. But it it kind of unearthed something for, I think, all of us in that we now feel like we're available constantly. Um, I can have meetings from anywhere. Before COVID, you know, quarantine, I didn't know how to use Zoom. Now I can use Zoom. Um, so how can we how can we kind of reconnect with this? our rhythms with the sacred pulse when, when we feel like we can and should mm. be able to work anywhere and at any time. That is so incredibly difficult. I just was speaking with a colleague the other day who he had received an email 12 hours before he hadn't even seen it yet. And there was somebody already ready to send out the search party and see if he was okay because he hadn't responded. Mm. And, and we have to back up and say, 12 hours. We, we, we can only wait 12 hours. And, and then we worry. Um, why aren't they responding to me? Or we're angry. I can't do this until they get back to me. Don't they know how stressed I am, how busy I am? And we can begin to resent those connections with each other instead of appreciating them. And 
I don't know if there's a surefire way around that. I mean, some some of it is fun and some of it is good. I was just in a meeting the other day and someone was canning jelly during the meeting. And part of that was delightful to me. I thought I didn't even know that they could can. I had no idea. I, I wonder what jelly they're making now. I want to go over to their house. You know, those kinds of things that, that are fun, that we get to know things about each other. We get to see our pets. Uh, my kids loved showing their dogs to their online classmates. So there are some fun things about it. But I think on the other side of COVID, we're going to have to work very hard to decide how much of our home lives we want to allow into our work lives. Do we want to be burning the dinner while juggling a child, while helping with homework, while also attending to that board meeting? Is that the place we want to find ourselves? And for me, I find that that leaves me exhausted and frazzled, and I'm not giving my kids what they need. I'm not giving my colleagues at work what they need. I'm, I'm letting myself down, everybody down, trying to do it all. So I think there's going to just be some discernment and some boundary setting. And, and we're going to have to be honest with each other. Um, I have a colleague that she's awesome about in her email signature. If you write to her on a Friday, it bounces back and says, I observe a tech-free Sabbath on Fridays. I will respond to you in the next two days or whatever. Um, and I, I find that very hospitable for her to be transparent. I am, I'm observing something I need but I am going to attend to you when I get back. And that kind of reduces the anxiety about it too. Yeah, I remember having a conversation with a colleague where she disclosed to me that she puts a statement in her syllabus saying to her students that from five until you know nine, which is the time that she's home with her children, mm-hmm. that she won't respond to emails. And um, I think she did say she would later in the evening, but that was revolutionary to me. And mm-hmm. I still sometimes think about that. I have not yet done anything like that myself. I don't know why, uh, but just... The fact that she was able to set those clear boundaries and say to her students, I know that during this time from five to nine or often until 11 or midnight, college students are active and and busy and and sending communication. But for her, that was a time that she was setting apart and letting Mm -hmm. them know clearly this is a time I will be with my family. I love that. That's beautiful. And it's a way of that professor letting her students know when I go home, my, my life looks different than maybe yours does. You go home and you dig into your books, you get into your studies. I am going home to, to a family that hasn't seen me all day, and this is a way I want to be present. And I think that's, that's just a beautiful way of saying this is who I am. I am still there for you, but this is where I am. Yeah, it sounds like, you know, there's things that we need to stop doing, but there's also things that we can start doing. And you know, I'm thinking about, we're recording this early uh, in the year, it's January when we're recording this. And, you know, there've been lots of things about don't make resolutions, get better rhythms, um, yes. set better habits for yourself rather than just sort of thinking that willpower is going to do that. And I thought that this book is very, I thought this book is in a wonderful compliment in some ways to Tish Harrison Warren's Liturgy of mm-hmm. the Ordinary. Um, whereas um, your 
almost kind of continuing on that project and expanding. So here is some new things that you could start doing, mm -hmm. some new rhythms. Um, and so I wrote down some of the chapter titles here. You have chapters on gardening, on handcrafting. And uh, I wonder if a person perusing those chapters um, might think, oh, man, one more thing I have to learn how to do or, or one more thing that I'm – I'm not doing enough or oh, I'm so bad at gardening or I, mm. I, I don't have energy to think about shopping locally or something like that. But I found that the way that you really ushered us into these topics was really pastoral and accessible. So how do you help a person who, you know, looks through your table of contents and says, oh, gardening, sustainable living. How, how do you encourage someone who's intimidated by that mm. uh, to move in the right direction? So the sacred pulse is about getting away from the need to commodify or make to-do lists about everything. And so the last thing I would want someone to do is to write down the chapter titles as some kind of a to-do list. If I do all 11 of these things and find a church that observes the church year, suddenly my overwhelm goes away. That's, that's not it at all. Um, but I do believe that for people who maybe can't even keep an aloe vera plant alive, that they can still learn the power of observation and the power of curiosity. All of us go outside sometimes, even if we just open our front door to get our mail, and we can learn and strengthen the muscle of observation about the way the trees have changed or the songs the birds are singing in the trees and notice and wonder and ask questions. I, I had an experience um, a while back in the area where I live, cardinals are very uncommon. And I was sitting on my couch and I distinctly heard a cardinal call. And I remembered it from living in central Iowa. And I got up off my couch and I walked outside and I looked up and there was a cardinal in my tree. And the delight that that brought to my life, the joy that that brought to my life, just by being observant. So often we can get almost tunnel vision about our schedules and our lists. And the sacred pulse is about expanding, expanding our vision to see things that we normally miss. So for a person who maybe is not a baker, maybe they're never going to crochet or knit. Uh, that's just not their thing. There's still value in using our hands, in learning how to make things or appreciating things that other people have made. My, my dad always would say when I was growing up, my whole family likes to sing. And he would say, I'm not a musician, but I'm a music appreciator. And I always loved that posture because we need both. Um, we may not all be gardeners. We may not all be crafters. Um, we may, some of us may have to buy things online there may not be any choice for an item that we need or a situation that we're in, but we can become inquisitive and ask questions and ask ourselves, why do I do that? Is this helping me? Is this bringing life to me and my community? And I think all of us will find some peace and wholeness in doing that. I appreciate your story about the Cardinal because I think there's so many beautiful things in the world, right? And, and, we want to experience them all. And I, I think for myself, that's why I often say yes to so many things, because mm -hmm. all of these opportunities, these experiences just sound like they'll be so uh, valuable and exciting. And it's it's a new thing for me to learn, similar to in some ways to going out and seeing the Cardinal. It's, it's something mm -hmm. different. It's something beautiful. Uh, and, and somehow you can 
get to the flip side of that where you've said yes and the beautiful things, the things that are supposed to be, you know, mm-hmm. growing and challenging me have all of a sudden become burdensome. Yeah. And I think the the Calvinist work ethic can really uh you know, work against us in that way. And and these perceptions that we have about total depravity uh, can lead us to, to disconnection and burnout um, uh, maybe more easily. So, and how do you, how have you seen this to be true? Um, Do you think it's true? And then you talk about your own journey with total depravity. How, how, yeah. How do you see it now? Oh, those are great questions. Um, Total depravity. I first had learned meant that we are all totally bad all the way through. And when you believe that and you believe that about yourself or you believe that about others, you can get caught almost in this hamster wheel of needing to produce evidence to the contrary. Mm-hmm. We we feel this need to prove I'm I'm not bad or I'm working for God. Look at the fruit of my hands and we can just keep going and going and going. I have since come to um, view total depravity as that the effects of sin touch everything, but still within even the most sinful of all of us is still that image of God that proclaimed us very good on that day of creation. And when we can look at things in that way, that we've already been declared good by God, yes, inclined to sin, yes, we still struggle, make mistakes, we need the Spirit, we need grace. But when we can acknowledge that at our core is the goodness that God created in us, then there's no longer that need to prove ourselves over and over and over. That's one reason why Henry Nouwen's work has resonated so deeply with me, is that he writes over and over that we are God's beloved, God's beloved children. And if we received that, then we can loosen our grip a little bit and maybe let go of some of that need to perform or be constantly proving our worth. Yeah, it's interesting. I think I've heard like these kind of competing mantras, um, mostly within like females, uh, but this idea of I am enough Mm. and then the counter message of I am not enough and that's okay. And I've just been wrestling with that lately. And so Mm. I appreciate um, how maybe both can be true, right? Like I'm, I'm not enough, but I, I am enough because of God's grace. Yes. Yeah, that is so important because I, I've heard a lot of pushback against I am enough because it can also be taken to mean I can do all the things. But I think I am enough is really just a conviction of our central worthiness that we, we have dignity because of God and that nothing can take that away. And in that regard, I am enough because God made me enough. And yet we still are finite, limited people. We need each other. We need grace. We need do-overs. Um, and and I think we can hold both of those things. Yeah, it's helpful for me to think sometimes in terms of, you know, some of the basic errors just in Christian theology of cheap grace versus antinomianism versus justification by works. And it seems like all of those things are operative, you know, in, in some of those statements um, and how we we feel this need for someone outside us to come in and say that we're okay. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's why the gospel is just so, such good news, you know, to have someone outside come in and say, you're okay, you know. Um, yeah. 
So one of the chapters to sort of change the subject a little bit um, from this uh, that I found really helpful was the one where you encouraged us to resist convenience uh, in the favor of something better. And you note that the world seems to be designed so that we just sort of go along with whatever is most convenient for us. And it sort of reminded me, we had a guest, uh, Felicia Song, who's a sociologist that studies technology. And she says, you know, the reason why it's so hard for you to put down your phone is because you're struggling against this whole system. It has been designed mm -hmm. so that you will not want to put it down. Yeah. And so we feel this, this system that, again, is pushing us always to prioritize our own convenience. And, you know, many of us perhaps want to live more intentionally. We have aspirations to shop locally, but we wonder, does this really make any real difference if I do this? Or maybe there are some unintended consequences of buying decisions that, and that overwhelms me, you know, for those uh, listeners who maybe seen The Good Place, there's this character named Chidi who just goes crazy thinking about almond milk and, you know, the way that that will affect everything. And so my question is, how do we navigate the felt futility of mm. knowing we're struggling against this entire system. There's not a lot of good ethical choices. Um, and we are very small players in this global economy. How do you navigate that sense of smallness as you try to live a life that is, is coherent and sustainable and meaningful, but just feels like everything around you is calibrated so that you can't really feel like you're making any sort of difference? Yeah. Yeah, I'm just one person. What can I do? Yeah. This is in, in the chapter on shopping that you're talking about, as far as convenience and being inclined toward what's convenient for us. You're absolutely right. We have to remember that we, we're just a small part of a big system that is designed to be convenient and not necessarily just or good. So we, we first have to acknowledge that we're just one person in a big global system. That said, I think we can pause and we can we can prioritize relationship over convenience. Um, convenience is about what's good for me, what's good for me now in this moment. But if we pause and ask about what's good for our relationships, we can come up with some really creative solutions. We may find that we reach out and ask a neighbor for something instead of buying it. We might share things with each other. We might stop and say, do I need one more thing or do I just need a bunt pan this one time? And my neighbor might have one and we can share and we can can help each other in that way. So I think if we pause and ask about relationships and also that pause helps us take the immediacy out of things, we are we are culturally conditioned to want things as fast as possible. The buy it now button, um, we think if I click buy it now, I'll have it tomorrow. But if we can pull ourselves out of that instantaneous kind of thinking, we can begin to get creative. We can begin to question if we really need certain things, which can be very helpful. We, we have a, a man that we know who he had knee replacement surgery. And it was during a time when you couldn't go out to physical therapy to do your rehabilitation. I think it was right at the beginning of COVID. And his doctor wanted him to ride an exercise bike as his rehab and all he kept thinking to himself was, I'll use it for rehab, but then I'll never use it after that. I don't, I don't want to spend $150 on an exercise bike. And his wife said, did you ever ask anyone at church? And he called and I answered the phone and he said, this is a really weird question. My wife wants me to ask, does someone at church have an exercise bike I could borrow for six weeks? And I said, actually, I do. 
and we were able to take it to his house. And that has since become the traveling exercise bike that has helped several people through their knee replacement surgeries. And it's something we've used, but it just mostly collects dust. But here we help each other. And because of that, we didn't need to go out and buy it. We didn't need to continually contribute to a system that maybe isn't helping us. But you're right. Thinking about Cheedy, he's such a great character. And I just, I picture him um, arguing ethical choices until an air conditioner falls on him out the window. Um, The poor guy, he just, it's such a struggle. And I think, I think the truth of it is there are very few completely ethical choices in this world, which is very, very difficult. I think that's one place where shopping local is helpful. It's not just because we're shopping local. It's because we can build relationships with the people that we are are purchasing things from or getting services from. Because so much of it, you, you buy something and you think, oh, I'm patronizing this company. And you find out, no, they're owned by this other company that owns, you know, a thousand other companies. And you have to really do some deep work to get into that. And sometimes it's not very transparent. If we can make it less about ourselves and less about the immediacy of our choices and more about our relationships, our community, and that sacred pause of I don't need it now, I can wait, we may make different choices. Yeah, that resonates with me. I live in a very small town, 1,500 people. Our grocery store closes every day at 6 p.m. And so I can't tell you how many times I've heard, and there's a town whistle that goes off at 6. And I hear the town whistle and I think, oh, no, I needed this for supper, dinner. And too late. And and the nearest grocery store is at least 10 miles away. And so we, we've had to you know, figure those things out. And in the end, um, at first it was a big adjustment, but now those things don't feel as much of an emergency. Mm-hmm. Um, we, you know, we compromise, we, yeah, uh, find a plan B and it, and it works just as well. Yeah. But we have to relearn a whole new rhythm. When, when my husband and I were right out of seminary, our very first church was in a town of about 650 people. And everything closed at five and nothing was open on Sunday. And at first I thought, oh, this is great. Um, This is wonderful. And then my son had a fever on a Saturday night and we were out of Tylenol. And you can't just use Tylenol on a two-year-old. You need children's Tylenol. And so what do you do? Do you get in the car and drive 30 minutes hoping Walmart's still open? Or do you start calling neighbors? And when you're in those situations, you need to do something right away. You can't just wait. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and those... Reaching out, asking a neighbor, I think that opens the door then, and they know then when they need something, they can call you and ask as well. Those are lessons that I've certainly learned living in a, mm-hmm. a small town with, um, yeah, limited resources from time to time. I wanted to touch on something you talked about at the beginning, and and someone in your church, I think, had said to you that after reading your book, they were surprised that you ever felt that way or that you've ever felt weary or, um, or tired or overwhelmed because you're, you're able to kind of, uh, or were able to, you know, portray something different. I think about the way that that kind of lack of vulnerability on our part Mm -hmm. sometimes leads to disconnection, especially when it comes to friendships. Um, in my thirties and forties, I just feel like it's become more and more difficult for me to make and keep friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, my work life has gotten busier. My children's lives have gotten busier. Uh, I have 
a 40 commute, 40 minute commute each way to work. And so my time is very valuable. And I find myself thinking, I don't have time to respond to them right now, or I don't have time to meet them for lunch or go out for coffee. I just kind of hunker down and I do what I need to do for work and family. Um, and I also feel like we, we always are talking about how busy we are. So when I do connect with friends, it becomes kind of this, this complaining session about how busy everything is or um, almost a competition of who's busier, um, who lo- whose lives are, are crazier. Yes. Um, so how, how, do we, how do we connect with each other again? How do we break that cycle of, of competition, of disconnection, mm-hmm. of making excuses for why we're not able to, to continue to work on those relationships and friendships? That's a great question. I I resonate with so much of that. I think that in our lives we have different seasons and different rhythms. You know, when my when my kids were really really little and I was struggling so hard, I remember my mom said to me, "Before your kids go to school, that time between birth and age 5 is the loneliest time in a parent's life." And just hearing that made me feel better <laughs> because I knew it wasn't just me. And then things did gradually get a little bit better as my kids were in school and I had a little more time. But now I have a 14-year-old and a 12-year-old and it's activities all day long. And when there's not activities, there's homework or navigating social challenges or issues with friends. And it seems like it's all-consuming. So I completely relate to that. I think that part of it is that we hold these expectations of what our time with our friends needs to look like. We need to have our house all cleaned up. And if we have them over for dinner, it needs to be a really nice dinner so that they know I'm a good cook or whatever it is. I read an article a couple of years ago that kind of went viral about scruffy hospitality. And it said, invite your friends over for for boiled hot dogs and mac and cheese. And don't worry about the fact that you have shoes all over the floor. They have shoes all over their floor, too. And so I think there's some of that. If we can adjust our expectations for our times together, maybe we just watch a TV show together. Or even we we know that one friend watches a show and we also watch that show so we can connect around that when we're together. And it doesn't have to be a production. I think a lot of times we think we have to have some sort of a... Um, production when we're together. And then our friends don't want to return the invite because they feel they have to at least match it or do more than that. And it becomes this unsustainable kind of a thing. I've also, I have a friend who made the goal during COVID of inviting 20 different groups of people to play board games over Zoom. And they just had, they had to find a game that each of them had in their home or a card game. And they found a way to play it together over Zoom or share a meal over Zoom. And I thought, that is so cool. Um, we can That's a, a wonderful way we can drop in on each other's lives. It's not a replacement for in-person time, but it's at least an opportunity to connect around something fun and enjoyable, even across time zones or geography. Yeah, those are great ideas. And I think those expectations sometimes really discourage us from, mm. you know, keeping things simple and, and realizing that the, the, the beauty in uh, connecting isn't about whether your house is clean or if you've got a fancy dinner, it's just about the time spent together. 
I have a friend that is great at that. The first time I went over to her house, she said, I'm just going to tell you when we walk inside, my house is messy because housekeeping is not my thing. (laughs) But she just had every time spent with her was fun. And it wasn't ever um, elaborate. Usually wasn't even pre-planned. We might run run into each other at the fitness center. And she'd say, you want to come to my house for muffins? I made a few extra. And it didn't matter if there were dishes in the sink or kids playing on the floor and toys everywhere. We we could just connect, even if it was only for a half hour. I also wanted to talk a little bit, you know, I think your chapters on friendship and your chapter on grief uh, just really, it, it just really resonated with me, almost like you were peering into my heart and mind. Um, I actually teach a grief class in our Mm -hmm. Masters of Social Work program. I just finished uh, teaching that class in the fall. And it's hard for students. It is really hard for them to think about their own experiences with grief, but think about like approaching grief with a client Um, Or, you know, with someone in their personal life, because as you say in the book, there's just this stigma around grief or there's really rigid boundaries or expectations for what grief is supposed to look like. So how can we, again, kind of become vulnerable with each other as we share our griefs and our sorrows without, you know, kind of feeling like a downer where people Mm -hmm. are. Um, maybe wanting to avoid us because it seems like we're always maybe grieving or sorrowful. Um, how, can, how can we break down that stigma? Oh, that's so difficult. I think, I think there's at least two things that cause grief to have a stigma around them. One is that it's not this sunshiny, optimistic, uh, fun to be around kind of an experience. And I think we, we like to prioritize being around people and experiences that feel good. And, and grief is not that way. But I also think because grief is messy and it's not linear and it can't be rushed. And a lot of times we don't even understand what we're feeling or experiencing as it's happening. It doesn't fit into our, our desire for control and productivity and putting one foot in front of the other. And so because of those things, I think we try to push it to the wayside. And the way that American culture does death and grief reinforces that people typically die in hospitals or in care facilities away from our notice. And now during COVID, sometimes all by themselves without family or friends around, and it can almost feel like it didn't happen. This surreal experience that happens over there. And then when I leave the hospital or I leave the funeral home, I'm supposed to be fine again, even though your life is fundamentally changed. I think that um, finding the courage to be vulnerable about how we're feeling It's so difficult, but I think when we do, we will find that other people will be encouraged to do the same because every person is carrying some sort of burden of grief right now during COVID and really always. Um, Being able to say, I woke up today and I'm just hurting and I don't know why is so important. And then we can bear each other's burdens in that way. So regardless of when people listen to this episode, as we record it, we've just started a new calendar year. And, you know, it's the time of year when a lot of times people are thinking about what do I want to do differently this year, if anything, though, in the middle of, you know, after the the last couple of years we've had, you know, most people are probably less inclined, right, to make plans or, or resolutions or rhythms. But 
it's probably likely that there are people listening to this podcast that are at the place of saying, I'm overwhelmed. Uh, what I'm, the rhythm I'm living at is not sustainable. It's not healthy. It's not holy. And so for someone who wants to move in the rhythm, um, the sacred pulse that you've written about in this book, what would be one thing that you would want them to know? And then what would be one thing that they could begin to do? Hmm. One thing that I would like people to know is that the sacred pulse is everywhere, absolutely everywhere. It doesn't matter if you work in an urban environment. It doesn't matter if you're home most of the day. It doesn't matter if you've got children or you're single. God's sacred pulse is there for us. And I, I view it as kind of a whisper. Our world is so loud. And God's whisper to us is always there, but we just need to make space to listen for it. And so what can we do? Um, what can we do in order to do that? I think really it's about listening and it's about curiosity. If we can find the courage to ask why, why did the sun look like that this morning? Why, why do I feel anxious when my phone rings? Um, you know, what's that about? To be able to ask those questions, both about the good and the bad, can help us to uncover some of the rhythms that we've unintentionally fallen into, because we all have one, whether we know it or not. And if we can find that posture of curiosity to ask, why do I react this way? Why does this delight my senses? You know, whatever it is, we can begin to be more intentional about our rhythm instead of just being sucked along like on a conveyor belt where we just go where the conveyor belt takes us and we don't know where it's going to lead, but we're just marching forward. If we, can, if we can pause and listen and begin to ask those questions of why, then we can begin to move with purpose. And it may look like starting a garden or it may just look like something small. I love Tish Harrison Warren talked about making the bed, um, just this little act of purpose first thing in the morning. It can be small and it would be different for every person, I think, but that's a great place to begin. Our guest has been Reverend April Fiat. The book is The Sacred Pulse, Holy Rhythms for Overwhelmed Souls. April, thank you so much for joining us on the In All Things podcast. Thank you for having me. for listening to the In All Things podcast from the Andreas Center at Dort University. Original music is provided by The Ruralist, and thanks are in order to Ruth Clark, Shannon Vischer, Vaughn Donahue, and the production team at the Andreas Center. You can find us online at inallthings.org or follow us on Twitter under the name at in underscore all underscore things. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. And if you find our content beneficial, please help us out by leaving a review and sharing with others. Thanks for tuning in.